was definitely um, life-threatening. And then because she couldn't breathe, it actually told me that she was actually dying. Uh, she didn't have the energy, even with the help of the incubators and things like that, she didn't have the energy to keep breathing. She just kept lapsing back towards death. I think they told me there was only like a 20% chance of survival. It's the centre in all sections of the child area. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Let's talk about babies. The arrival of a new baby in the family is such an exciting time. And when it comes to the second, third or fourth baby in a family, an expected mum can be pretty relaxed about the whole process. Kate Napier has a lovely daughter, Charlotte, with no complications. And even though it's standard practice to head into town when a baby is due, a week out from Kate's second daughter, she was still at home on the station. Kate lived on a property called Borea, some 50 kilometres from Orgothella, a township of 400 people in southwest Queensland. Orgothella has a small hospital and health clinic, however, not very sophisticated in terms of what they can deal with when it comes to births. A larger tertiary hospital is 150 kilometres away in Charleville, and Kate had no family living in the region, so she admits she left it all a little bit late to move to town for the baby's delivery. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining me. No worries, Lars. Nice to meet you. How did you end up in southwest Queensland? I presume you didn't grow up there. No, uh, I left Brisbane um, when I was about 18 year old to um, go and try working on a cattle station. Um, my he- I met my husband uh, at Aramac, actually, on a property that we both worked on. Uh, and then we've moved around Queensland uh, over the last 15 years um, to different places, uh, wherever the job takes us, really. Oh, wow. So you really got that. You had it in your blood from pretty early on. What, what inspired you to move to the country to work around cattle? Uh, well, my family um, own a little property, uh, about 1,100 acres in the Brisbane Valley um, near Kilcoy. And um, I always thought I was pretty good at it and, and it was definitely on my bucket list to do. Uh, so when I um, got diagnosed with the beginning stages of cervical cancer, I thought it was definitely something that I wanted to do and that I would at least give it a go. Uh, my first job took us out to Claremont. And then a few years after that, I uh, met my husband um, on a property at Aramac. Oh, wow. Well, tell me about Rob because um, I just got to briefly meet him before we started this interview. <laughs> tell me about him. Uh, he's a pretty interesting bloke <laughs> once you get to know him. Um, he's definitely old school country um, but with a heart of gold underneath the tough exterior. We've worked together 
on and off. Uh, you know, obviously I had the kids and I was home mainly, but I basically helped him in the paddock, been his right-hand man since we met. Wow. How did you end up living on the property Borea? Uh, once we uh, became a couple, we had a few other jobs and uh, we just applied through it, the management job through the paper, working for uh, Winnethula Pastoral Company, um, who owns that one at the time. And then we spent the next six years there. What size property is it and, and do they? what sort of stock do they carry? At the time, uh, they were just getting into Angus um, cattle. Uh, from memory, I think it was about 50,000 acres there. That's a big job. And and did you already have Charlotte, your first daughter at that time? Yes, yeah. What was it like working on a remote station as a young mum with a young bub or a young child and managing a property with Rob? That must have been an interesting challenge. It, it certainly was. It was uh, very isolated um, and, and definitely didn't leave any, uh, as we didn't have any family or anything like that, There, it was, you know, uh, very stressful to begin with raising even one child on your own one thing that did keep us going uh, was the Augathella playgroup um, which was very very important uh, to any young mum and if especially if a lot of people out there don't have family and are out there for the jobs they were life-saving support really and any of the other social things that you could get to in town but we didn't really go out very often um, you know with little ones but uh, the playgroup was definitely a lifesaver for me that's for sure. See I think that's uh, that's really interesting because Augathella was about 50 kilometres away, wasn't it? But it was still pretty close. That was that was close in your head. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And, and we definitely go in once a week so that the kids could get some uh, socialisation because uh, otherwise they sort of never even got to meet anybody um, very much. Uh, we probably only went to town once a month to Charleville for groceries. Um, so it was really important that I made myself go out to the playgroup to socialise myself and talk to other mums, of course, but um, to also socialise Charlotte at the time. When my kids were little, we had playgroup and it was, you know, five kilometres down the road. And I always thought, gosh, I'm so lucky to have just five kilometres away. But I'm thinking, gosh, wouldn't that be interesting to have it 50 kilometres away? What would be a regular day for you as a mum with young daughter Charlotte at that time? Uh, well, probably just um, with her, we used to work some horses. Um, I used to, when Rob would go on lick runs and things like that, um, or checking waters, we'd always go with him. I, I always did my own baking and all of that kind of stuff. So, but, you know, if you went to town, you know, you're obviously gone all day. So it was usually something you prepared for, I think, really. Although it does feel like it was a lifetime ago. Right. Now, you became pregnant with your second child. Had there been any complications or challenges with that second pregnancy? No, it was with Charlotte. I actually, they thought I was going to deliver her early. So they actually made me move to Brisbane at 26 weeks with Charlotte. So I spent three months away. Rob Rob was back being a bachelor um, back at Augathella, uh, but she there was no there was no complications just that they thought that she might have come earlier and they couldn't have um, helped us at all if she had so we took the precaution and moved to Brisbane because that's where all my family are and stayed there for three months uh, so we thought Lily was going to be our easy child now that we'd had one with no complications isn't that always the way that's <laughs> always the way with with mothers that they go oh the second one she'll be right it really was and I, I don't even remember having morning sickness like she was 
absolute pleasure to have as a pregnancy and we didn't I didn't have any concerns at all I think my only concern was when it started to flood um, three weeks before uh, my due date and I was worried I wouldn't get out to the hospital and that I'd have to try and call one of our chopper friends that own a chopper to to, to fly us out to Charleville but once it started receding uh, we just thought it would be super straightforward Uh, you know we'd gotten all the scans that we were supposed to get and and nothing had been picked up or anything like that. So we just thought it was going to be super simple. <laughs> Is Charlotte excited about the imminent arrival of a sibling? And did she know it was a sister? Uh, we did know that it was going to be another girl. Um, I think Charlotte probably didn't really understand too much. She was she was a very good big sister when we had her. Um, and, of course, uh, when I went into labour, we actually had to take Charlotte with us. So so my husband was looking after Charlotte in the waiting room and would bring her in every so often while we were there because we didn't have anyone we could leave her with. As she, She'd probably never even really knew her grandparents at that stage either because we only really visited with them once a year. And um, Charlotte, I think, was only about two and a half when... Um, I had Lily, so so it was um, a big change for Charlotte, but I'm not sure she really knew what was going on. So tell me what happened when labour started, because from what I understand, it was almost midnight and you realised that something had started. Well, because... I'd been in Brisbane with Charlotte. I'd actually been induced with Charlotte so that I could make, so I could come home. Um, so I hadn't actually been through a proper labour on my own, and I also got a um, epidural with with Charlotte uh, as a first time mum. So I didn't really know what was going on. I'd felt a bit off for the day, but I was nearly due. Well, and then in the middle of the night, I woke up because I had back pain. I didn't think back pain had anything to do with having a baby. Labour. Yeah. So I I didn't really, wasn't too concerned about anything much. And then I sort of, it started to get a lot worse. So I said to Rob, I said, I think, you know, like we need to call the ambulance um, because it was the middle of the night and we weren't really sure what, because I was actually supposed to be in Charleville already because you're supposed to, leave the station two weeks before your due date. And you had been a little lax. Well, I, I was. I was I was actually waiting for my mother to fly out so that she could look after Charlotte while Rob worked um, and then I wouldn't have to have Charlotte in town as well in um, the accommodation that they provide. Um, and I was not too concerned really that we would have any issues. So I um, put it off for as long as possible. <laughs> Now, Orcothello is 50 kilometres away. When you call an ambulance, when you live in city areas, you sort of say call an ambulance, you know, it shows up 15 minutes later. But that's not the case when you live on a remote station that's out in southwest Queensland. That's just not the case. So Definitely not. So calling an ambulance, what happened? Well, the, I had spoken to, because I wasn't going to town when I was supposed to, I had discussed and they said, if you go into labour, call. you've got to call triple zero. Don't call locally because it'll get dispatched then the way that it normally would. So that's what we did. Um, but then, of course, triple zero that I spoke to obviously couldn't find us. They didn't know where we lived because we were so remote. Uh, so they had 
to then get um, the people in Augustella who, you know, knew us all and knew where we lived and things like that so that they could tell, like, they knew where they had to go to come and find us. So we decided once we'd done that and we knew they were on their way, uh, we decided then that we would drive in. So we packed up Charlotte and Rob drove us towards town so that we could meet the ambulance a bit quicker and that they didn't have to come out as far. Right. Now, what time of night was this? I'm pretty sure it must I Well, I know that I went into labour about 12.30, but it is a little bit hazy now with so long right. past. Uh, but I'd say we probably got met the ambulance at about 1 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, there was a met by a locum that I don't think, you know, obviously had finished all the hospital things. But I think the last thing she was thinking was that she was going to be in charge of nearly delivering a baby. Right. So you've got this brand new doctor who's just visiting, uh, who's in the ambulance in the middle of the night, come out this road where they don't even know how to find you. So you have to drive to them so that they can actually get the patient. So do you remember climbing into that ambulance? I do. I, I do remember climbing into the ambulance um, and I do re- remember how nervous the locum that we had on at the time was. But there was a there was a nurse in there who, who was really, really good and she, she was on night shift and she was really, really good at calming everybody down so that we could all get ready for the trip to um, Charleville as Augustella doesn't deliver babies. Right. Now, did she... Or were they both, the doctor and nurse, confident that you would make it to Charlieville before you had your baby? Well, I'm not sure that they were confident that I'd make it there, but I do remember um, the nurse that I had. She did tell me, she said that she hadn't delivered a baby. She delivered one baby and it was 10 years earlier, she said, but her husband's a vet and she's watched him deliver lots of cars before. But if I could keep my legs crossed until I got to Charleville, then that would be very helpful. (laughs) Great advice. (laughs) I do actually remember the locum shaking when she was trying to put needles into my hand. <laughs> so it's the middle of the night. Let's, let's just paint this scene. It's the middle of the night. You're in an ambulance. You've got a local, uh, not a local, you've got a visiting doctor who's, you know, just out of med school and is looking at you with big gaunt eyes. <laughs> you've got a, a local nurse who's being a really calm and reassuring presence within the back of the ambulance but she's saying that she hasn't delivered a baby for 10 years and um, hoping that her the skills of her husband as a vet will come in handy where was Rob at this time was Rob and Charlotte were they following in the car or where were they Uh, So they were actually, so once we had got me all sorted um, and ready to travel, uh, we then, Rob and Charlotte wound up following in the car, following the ambulance in the car back to Charleville. Okay. And were you in a lot of pain or were the contractions getting more regular at that point? They were getting uh, much more regular, but it was still only back pain. So I wasn't really sure what was going on, but I wasn't, I wasn't too concerned, I don't think. <laughs> so you're heading off and you're heading to Charleville and that's, uh, so I guess you've got like a good 120 kilometres or something to drive to Charleville. Is it a sealed road or is it dirt? It's, it's once, once you get to Augustella, then it was sealed all the way. But of course, Augustella and Charleville are just renowned for kangaroos. There's just so many out out there all the time that it's something that you've got to be really, really um, vigilant about 
when you're travelling at any time, day or night, really, out there. So it was a very interesting trip in the ambulance. All I remember really is the um, we were driving along. Obviously, it felt really fast because I was lying down um, and in a lot of pain. It, well, really fast, but then again, really slow. It took a long time to get there. And then every so often, you would just hear this big bang into the in into the car and you you know we were all sitting in the back oh my god what was that you know thinking it was breaking down he's like and the driver was like oh it's all right I just hit a room and and then my husband I remember when we were talking about it later on that day because he wasn't far behind and he's like oh it was good they you know all the rooms were out of the way when I came past he said but he said well while he was as long as he was behind the ambulance he could he could see all the rooms that were that we were getting past so I think we probably from memory, I think we hit about five on the way on the 100-kilometre trip there. Did the nurse or the doctor make any comments as you're driving along and, and hitting all these roos? And, like, what were they saying? Uh, no, I can't really remember um, anything too much, but I think they were just trying to stay calm and keep me calm and not to worry about the sounds that the, you know, that the sounds of the roos being hit because, um the, ambu- the four-wheel drive ambulance was equipped for those kind of things um, being in the country and that it would be fine by the time we got there not to worry about it. So did it suffer any major damage or does it have a big bull bar or something? No, it, it had a big bull bar. I don't I don't actually know for certain, but I, d- I don't think it um, suffered any damage at all. It probably just sounded worse when you're in it opposed to what it actually did. Yeah. And were you calm and just dealing with the pain yes. or did you feel like it was all a little bit out of control? Yeah, I really don't remember being too worried um, because I just, I was like, oh, well, if I deliver on the side of the road, well, you know, it'll it'll be fine, you know, like people people deliver in lots of different places. So. All right, so you arrive at Charleville. I, I presume they rushed you to the maternity ward and so forth and got you settled down. Did, was there a midwife that was assigned to you? The midwife that was assigned to me, her name was Claire. Uh, we're still friends on Facebook today. Um, you know, they don't, because it's all low-risk birth, they don't, the doctors aren't too concerned unless the midwife has issues and everything was going along as planned. Nobody was sort of concerned. We just went into labour and um, I was actually pretty calm. I They let me be in a shower um, and I found that really calming and I really wasn't too – we really weren't too worried. We were just waiting for Lily to come. The midwives were very attentive. They were – Claire was, was wonderful a few hours after I arrived there, um, it was probably, I think I gave birth at around 5.30 in the morning. So we, um, I, I just sort of was in and out of the shower uh, until then. And then uh, Claire said to me, she said, oh, I think it's probably about time, you know, like you, you're not in too much pain. She said, I think we'll just check how you're traveling along so I started walking back towards the the bed the, the bed um in in my room that I had and I actually as soon as I got out of the shower the pain just became so super intense and I actually didn't even make it back to the bed Claire actually had to catch Lily while I was leaning over the bed or she would have fallen on the floor because we had no idea because I hadn't been in very much pain we had no idea that I was actually 
delivery time before we'd even made it back to the bed. So I do remember um, that, to Claire, that Claire was a bit upset that her, her um, shoes became full of amniotic fluid after that, um, but we were pretty impressed that she managed to catch Lil without le- uh, let, letting her drop on the floor. So Good on her. What a great midwife. Yeah, she was fantastic. <laughs> so And then I just remember um, after that, obviously, Claire passing her up through my legs from the floor and I held on to her while Claire finished up uh, snipping the cords and things like that. And then she helped me get into the bed with Lil and we attempted, you know, after the initial shock of everything, we attempted to breastfeed. Um, And it was at that point then when I was trying to cuddle into Lil for the first time that we realised that there was an issue. And what was it that you observed at that point? So Lil, it was like she was just couldn't breathe. She just had her mouth open and it was just like she couldn't catch her breath. And I actually said, because as they do those scores after birth, um, the midwives, I actually, um, as she was filling in the paperwork, I actually yelled to her and said, I think something's wrong. And she's like, she's like, oh, no, it'll, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, like, just keep trying. Just, you know, try and see if you can get Lil to latch on. And then I actually like stopped and said to her, I said, there's something wrong. And she came over and looked at Lil and then called for the doctor straight away. Wow. You must have been a bit worried. How were you feeling at that point? I I was sort of a bit, didn't really know what was going on, I suppose, at the time, um, as it all just felt like it happened so quickly. And initially we thought she had um, some sort of chest infection that was making it hard for her to breathe. And as, you know, we'd never envisioned that anything was going to be wrong for the delivery so they took her away and they started looking after her which I wasn't there for um, as they you know took her away from me to start trying to work out what to do and then once they um, realized that something was very wrong the doctor then uh, had to tube Lily so that she could breathe so obviously people that um work in specialised units in Brisbane and, and and big cities, obviously they tube babies every single day, um, numerous times a day. So then, you know, they're pretty good at it. But uh, as my doctor being in Charleville, he probably had never done one his entire career. So we were very, very, very lucky that he tubed her so well um, and didn't, didn't hurt anything down her throat when he did so as, you know, trying to put a tube in any sort of person, but let alone a newborn baby, um, I can imagine would be incredibly scary um, and stressful for, for the doctor, of course. And and how were you how were you doing or faring at that point? Because I understand you had some hemorrhaging as well. Well I did and but I was just sort of waiting, just assuming that they would bring her back any second, you know, like we, I didn't, didn't really know because um, they took her out of the room when they did all of this. Um, so the, I had another midwife then that had um, clocked on and she was just looking after me, making sure that everything was fine while the doctor, and they were just really good at calming me down um, and making sure that I wasn't stressed at all um, while they worked on Millie. And then of course, out in Charleville, they don't have, like oxygen machines, uh, ventilators and things like that that work automatically like they do in the big cities. Once they had got Lily 
tube, they actually had to attach it to um, some sort of oxygen machine that they had that they actually had to manually every, I think, like two seconds, the midwives had to take turns in pushing a button so that it would put the oxygen into Lily and keep her breathing while they had obviously called the RFDS after that and the specialists in Brisbane letting them know that we needed to be flown out. So, But I, I wasn't there for any of that um, until I'd recovered a few hours later. Did they have any idea other than an assumption that it might be strep? Did they have any other ideas for what it could be or they just knew that the baby was unable to breathe by herself? I think they just knew that once they'd cut the cord, once they'd cut her cord, the, the umbilical cord, that she just couldn't breathe and none of us had any idea as to why um, she was having so many issues with that. From when I've spoken to the midwives um, since then, they actually rang once once Lily was flown out and things like that. They'd actually called the hospitals in Brisbane to find out, you know, what had happened and how she was travelling and things like that because nobody in Charleville had any idea, and especially not for a diaphragmatic hernia to be in a low-risk birthing area of uh, as well. So they're all very shocked. So let's just talk about that because where she was flown and we'll we'll cover that a little bit more in detail but she ended up in Brisbane with the neonatal care and what is a, a diaphragmatic hernia exactly because it's for a newborn it's a, a birth defect I understand that has a, a rupture or a hole within that huge muscle of the diaphragm at the bottom of the lungs what did that mean for Lily because with that hole um, her diaphragm wasn't able to function as it's supposed to. And I understand that you can even end up with organs, you know, that are not meant to be around the lungs, actually moving up to where they're not supposed to be. What did they figure out was happening? So that's exactly what happened with Lil once they got her to Brisbane and they um, x-rayed and diagnosed her. She did have some of her stomach contents um, and other organs uh, through the hole. Uh, they said the hole was about the size of a 10-cent piece, which doesn't sound very big, but in a newborn baby, that's pretty huge she actually had collapsed lungs um, which is why she couldn't breathe um, because she had a collapsed lung on the side that the hole was on and then all of that stomach contents and the lungs had been had put pressure on her heart and her lungs um, all the way across into the other side so it was definitely um, life-threatening and then because she couldn't breathe they'd actually told me that she was she was actually dying um, and they had because she couldn't, uh, she didn't have the energy, even with the help of the incubators and things like that, she didn't have the energy to keep breathing. She just kept lapsing back towards death um, because there really is only, I, I think they told me there was only like a 20% chance of survival after we found everything out for her and especially because she hadn't been born in a large hospital and things like that she didn't have a very high percentage of survival as she'd traveled so far and had waited so long because by the time they'd they'd called obviously um straight away in the morning and then it took the rfds i think until about 11 o'clock to make it to Charleville. the midwives for hours and hours were helping keep her alive um by pressing this button uh, on the machine to keep her breathing. So what happens is when you have a newborn baby who is so critical, uh, you can't just fly in a plane. In fact, we have a, a Charlieville base right there for the RFDS and very, very close to the hospital. They could have gotten that baby 
over to the plane and off to Brisbane. But the problem is that when you have a baby that's in such a critical state, you have to get a neonatal unit and a paediatrician and a specialised ICU person, a specialist that can come who can deal with newborns. And so all of that has to be organised through Brisbane and has to come from Brisbane. So rather than, unfortunately, because of that remoteness, um, though I'm sure some Charleville people would tell me Charleville's not remote, (laughs) but but because of the distance from Brisbane, you have to organise all of that logistics and uh, and then get all of those people and equipment and everything onto an RFDS plane and then fly it out to Charleville and then get the baby onto the plane and then fly it back. And all of that takes time unfortunately so it's it's a difficult situation where you're trying to do everything you can to improve the the outcomes for that baby for that infant um but you have to do it right yes yeah no they definitely did their absolute best um and you couldn't have asked for any more we were we were a hundred percent uh they did absolutely and everyone cared immensely to get everything organised and it was just wonderful that they could organise things like that. And and without the RFDS, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a baby. They did an absolute amazing job to get there as quick as they did and get all the specialists that they needed out to save Lily's life. So, okay, so all of that's happening in the mid-morning and they're trying to stabilise you because you've had some hemorrhaging and you just had a baby and you have to be also stable. And, of course, when you have... Uh, a critical newborn, uh, a neonatal crisis like this, there is no room for a mum on the plane because you've got extra specialists and equipment and stuff and there's just no room for you. So you had to do a dash to Brisbane to try to follow Lily and you were going to take a commercial flight. What challenges did you have with that? Because I understand you also, obviously the first breast milk that you you give when you have a baby has this really um, important colostrum that is vital for immune system and health and and everything else. And we need to get that into the baby. So could you tell me that story about colostrum and catching the flight? Yes, of course. Yes. Um, So uh, yes, I I did have to stay behind, um, which we were a hundred percent fine with. We were just like, take our baby and do whatever you can for her. And so once they put her in the humidity crib, we said, took her to the plane. We said goodbye after that. Um, and then my midwife, Suzara, um, who'd come on the clock by then, uh, she was amazing and she was really, really supportive with everything. And they actually didn't have any um, pumping things in Charleville either. So Suzara actually had to help me express by hand um, into these tiny little medicine cups so that she could then suck them up in syringes um, and we could take them, keep them cold and take, take them on the plane in a box the next day. So she was absolutely amazing. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, and did you manage to catch that flight to Char- from Charlieville to Brisbane fairly easily? I did, except I was late to get there to the, when the plane, I, I got, by the time we did all the discharge and then my friend had collected me from the hospital, um, at that stage, Rob had taken Charlotte and my mother who had arrived on a commercial flight by then, he took them back to the property to get ready, get prepped and get everything squared away so that we we could um, then drive down, he could drive down to uh, Brisbane the following day. I had had got my friend um, to come and collect me from the hospital and as we got to the tarmac, to the airport, they actually said that baggage was closed um, and that I was late for my flight and that I wasn't allowed to get on it. 
And um, so I was, I just remember standing there and saying, well, I don't need any clothes. Yeah, just, I don't even worry about it. I just let me on the plane. And they're like, I'm sorry, everything's already closed. And I, I, I did have a meltdown then um, and told them that I would, had a box full of colostrum in my hand that I needed to get to my newborn baby um, that was then in Brisbane. And they said, oh, that's no worries we'll we'll put you on the flight so they they, I managed to get onto the flight which was fantastic and um they fixed everything up for me so that was fine and then of course not having any reception while you're on a plane flight to Brisbane we obviously I obviously didn't know whether or not we'd have a baby by the time we got there because we couldn't have any updates not having any reception on the plane yeah so you arrived in Brisbane and you're heading to the tertiary hospital there to hopefully find your daughter has pulled through. Yep. Had Rob already arrived or did you arrive by yourself? Well, as it's like an eight to nine hour drive, he hadn't made it there yet, um, but he had had some phone calls because um, they couldn't contact me for authority to do what they needed to do for Lily. So he'd heard from the hospital, but I hadn't managed to hear from anybody. So my sister um, met me at the um, airport and took me directly to the Maida Mothers is where Lil had been taken to, to be assessed. Um, And of course, but I hadn't heard from the hospital um, at all. So we didn't know that we'd have, we would have a live baby until we made it into the Maida Mothers intensive care unit. So could you tell me about uh, what happened when you actually got into the intensive care unit? Uh, Well, so Lily had, they did try to explain everything to me, but I was a bit of a wreck by then. They had actually put Lil on a machine that uh, shakes the babies to push air through their lungs. Um, So I actually thought she was having a fit um, when I first saw her, uh, but they reassured me that that's not what was happening. But she was she wasn't doing very well by then. Uh, so they then um, I believe after that they then had to transfer her over to the Lady Salento um, intensive care unit, where then they proceeded to keep her stable and then pop her on the uh, ECMO machine. What does the ECMO machine do? Uh, so it's basically like a like a bypass machine. So it did all the pumping, all the heart work for Lily. So they put tubes into their jugular vein and it pumps the blood around the body, like outside of the body and cleans it through a machine and then pumps clean blood back, through, oxygenated clean blood back through the baby um, so that they can have a break because they're using all their energy to to breathe and and to live uh this way it gave them a break gave her a break so that she um could just rest and she was on that for four days uh and they did the uh they they opened her up and did the like did the operation for her whole while she was on the ECMO uh and then weaned her off that over the next couple of days. How are you coping with all this and Rob and Charlotte? I think well, Charlotte wasn't coping very well because she was then put into a bu- bunch of people that she'd never really even met before, um, you know, her grandparents now that she knows very well. But because we were so remote, we, you know, really didn't see each other very often and we never had Skype and things like that when the kids were little, being so remote. But she was okay. But Rob and I were more just do whatever it is needs to be done. We 
don't worry about us. We'll sign whatever you need. Just do your best, you know, and, and, and things like that. And it was more of a that we knew that everybody there was working towards fixing Lil and keep bringing her back alive and there was nothing we could do. Um, as parents, we could only sit and wait and hope that the specialists were able to bring her back. We, were, we did have our hands full with um, with Charlotte at the time. So we sort of, more, although we spent all our time, all of our waking time at the hospital, we then would go home to look after Charlotte of a night time uh, so that as she was suffering um, from not being with us and things like that mm-hmm. at two and a half. Yeah. What a poor journey for poor little Lily to have to go through this. Oh, my gosh. Did the operation work to resolve that hernia? Uh, yes, it does. And we, um, since then, uh, we haven't, um, we, we've been through a lot of testing over the years. She came home on oxygen for six months and we went back to Brisbane uh, several times for checkups and all sorts of eye and auditory um, checkups and all of her breathing and things like that. But she came home on oxygen oxygen 24-7 for the first six months and we we didn't actually get to pick her up until she was 10 days old and that was by the time uh, she had been through all our operations and we'd only have been able to touch fingers after that so but we did get our first cuddle at 10 days old um, and then we were put up into the ward when when she was two weeks old and then spent another two weeks on the ward once she got drains and feeding tubes and things like that once she was growing we were, so we wound up being home after six weeks, um, which was amazing um, because there's, you know, with all our friends and things uh, that we've made since going through uh, that, there were so many children there that it was just so much worse for that had actually been born in big hospitals and things like that and, and, and had spent up to six months in intensive care and things like that. So Lily was absolutely amazing considering her chance of survival and the things that she went through and that we just came out of it really well with minimal issues after that and you know a lot of kids that go through this they have they don't like to eat and things like that because you can hurt their throats when they're tubed and things like that but we Lily doesn't even have asthma (laughs) wow that's fabulous now Lily's eight years old now is that right yep does she know how close she came to not being with us today? Like, have you ever told her the story? We do tell her the story. I don't think she understands how touch and go it was and how bad, like how bad it really got. Uh, she still is, I tell her to be very proud of all the scars that she has um, and that it means that she's brave and strong and hopefully she'll continue to believe that for the rest of her life. That's so true. Did you ever learn what causes that birth defect or was there anything that could have been done or is it just genetic? I think it's just one of those things that that you don't that there's no real explanation as as there's nothing uh, they did say that um you know in really severe cases that it can um have you know, there could be other defects uh with the with the child but we didn't seem to have any of those things and that it was just one of those things that just didn't form a hundred percent yeah and, and lots of people they that have CDH babies, they go on to have another one or and, you know, there's nothing. It's just one of those things. It's the luck of the draw, I think they call it. So you're now living on a rural property, Kate, in Rockhampton, and I know that in chasing you to do this interview that you're really busy, again, still managing properties, 
cattle stock, the whole thing. Um, has this journey with Lily changed your perspective on life or family or children at all? Well, I think it's really opened our eyes to that. I know that when you're pregnant, you think it's going to be straightforward and then life throws in a spanner. So it's definitely made us much more aware of uh, things that can go wrong. Um, It's certainly made us very appreciative that we have two healthy children with us today. That's for sure. Uh, We wouldn't have her any other way. Uh, And I'm, you know, as much as it would have been good to know, um, I'm glad we didn't. But we would have obviously made some much better decisions about um, where if I'd gone to town a bit earlier or something like that. But, But we are very, very blessed to have two amazing children healthy children. Has it brought you closer together, you and Rob? It, it really has. The, the girls, and Lily is fantastic, um, but the girls, they do that. But it was very hard, especially going back to the property, having to do that on your own um, with no support family or, you know, the village that it takes to raise a special needs child. Um, but we we made whatever, whatever we faced, we made it work. You're a very brave and and strong woman. I really appreciate you telling us about Lily's story. It makes me chuckle thinking about you bouncing along in the ambulance uh, with, you know, the sounds of kangaroos hitting the side of the ambulance. I think if there's anything to learn, I think we sometimes forget when we live in metro areas how easy uh, we have it when we're close to hospitals and where when something goes wrong so I'm really glad it all worked out well for you and for Lily and and I wish you all the best you Rob Charlotte and Lily thank you Lana thanks for listening it's been a great year and we've released another 30 episodes of the flying doctor podcast bringing us to a total of 60 real life stories from patients family members and RFDS staff There's been wonderful feedback from listeners and those we've interviewed. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. We're going to take a little break to work on some other key projects for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, but make sure that you follow this podcast so that you're informed when our next series launches in early 2023. That way you'll get a notification as soon as the next new episode drops. In the meanwhile, if you haven't already done so, catch up on our extensive back series as there are some ripper yarns, incredibly brave and strong people and many a story that are so typically Aussie in terms of resilience, innovation in times of crisis and of course humour. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community and you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at www.flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Talk to you again soon in 2023.